Welcome to our holiday episode number 33 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest inside scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 15 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is my fellow analyst, Anshul Sag. So let's get started with my first topic. Um, there's been, you know, some, you know, some discussion on social media and that sort of thing about OpenRAN and will it really have a demonstrable impact on 5G deployments? And actually, Light Reading, one of their contributors, um, spoke with um, one of the uh, the operators in uh, the UK, and um, you know, they basically stated that you know they don't see it, you know, dramatically impacting 5G. It's probably a 6G and beyond, you know, effect. We've talked about it on past podcasts, and um, I tend to agree with that. But there are going to be a few greenfield deployments, like you know, Rakuten is one. Um, certainly DISH um, as they ready their, their 5G deployment and Reliance and, and India as well. So what are your thoughts? I think we are still in the early days of OpenRAN and I think there is going to be a lot more pull towards OpenRAN long term, but because of the way that operators have their infrastructure deployed today and the way that their networks work, there isn't that much incentive to rip and replace. Um, I think a lot of their equipment was already, you know, a lot of the stuff that they have today for 5G was already installed with 4G mm -hmm. to software upgradable. So there's very little incentive for operators who already have existing infrastructure in place to go open RAN. That said, I have a feeling that open RAN will be more adopted in places like private networking where mm -hmm. it is a greenfield application yeah. and it can be tailored to the customer's needs without having to you know bend over backwards so i think open ran is going to have a much bigger role in private networking than i think it will in commodity networks yeah i i agree you know with respect to 5g i mean I mean, almost every major operator around the world is at least, you know, trialing and doing proof of concepts with it. Um, the other point that I've made on prior podcasts is that OpenRAN may be extremely um, CapEx disruptive, but not necessarily performance optimized. So I, I would agree with you, certainly um, Greenfield um, public deployments that, that I mentioned certainly private networking deployments, but some of those private networking deployments are gonna require specific um, latency and, you know, and, and for tactile operations like, you know, manufacturing automation and robotics and that sort of thing. But um, obviously time will tell, but, you know, I wasn't surprised to read, you know, that, that I believe it was three in the United Kingdom. Um, there, I think they have a new CEO that's coming on board and, he mentioned that, hey, you know, they're, I believe they're rolling with Ericsson and, um, you know, deploying the traditional infrastructure. But, but certainly I think, you know, we'll begin to see it, you know, you know, catch on in certain pockets and, and uh, we'll keep our eyes on that and report back as we see things develop. So let's move to your second, uh, or actually your first topic. <laughs> and you want to talk about China Mobile and they've really ramped their 5G subscriptions. Yeah. So, What's interesting is we've been tracking these Chinese operators for quite some time. And 
we've all known that China is very likely going to be the country that scales 5G the fastest uh, and to the highest number of users, which makes sense because they have the most mobile subscribers in the world. And the biggest operator, China Mobile, has been kind of giving like monthly and quarterly updates to how many users they've gained that are 5G users, specifically subscribers. And they recently reported for the month of November that they added 18 million new subscribers for 5G in November, which makes sense because there's so many 5G devices in market now mm -hmm. that span the breadth of, you know, 399 to $1,300, $1,400, depending on what your budget is. And they are now claiming, I want to say 147.38 million 5G subscribers, which is compared to 6.7 million back in January. So they've gained quite a few, even with COVID. Uh, and it's, it's a pretty big achievement, I believe. And it's kind of the number that the rest of the world will piggyback on in the sense that the total worldwide 5G subscriber numbers, which we'll probably find out in January, will most likely be, um, you know, around that 250 million subscriber total number that a lot of people were expecting. I think the number was 200, 250. And I think that range, which I believe Qualcomm was the one who had kind of uh, guesstimated, which they were pretty good at doing, uh, I think they were expecting that pre-COVID. And it's just an interesting thing because that's a lot of users for the first year of, of a G compared to 4G, which just did not have anywhere near that kind of uptake. So mm -hmm. operators are saying that, you know, they're, they're deploying it four to five times faster and getting four to five times more users on 5G than they did with 4G. So yeah. in spite of all the negativity that I think we've seen this year, I think 5G has actually been a relative success compared to 4G. And people just forgot how bad the 4G rollout was compared to 5G simply because there's a, you know, it's been a decade, so people forget. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it has been an extremely fast ramp relative to 4G. Um, but, you know, from my perspective, um, China isn't really focused on driving discrete services tied to 5G, both on the consumer and commercial side. You may have a different opinion, but, you know, is, is, is a lot of this like, you know, China wanting to beat its chest to say that they're, they're in the 5G pole position. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. Yeah. I think this is definitely, that number is being used. I mean, it's the same thing with the base station number, right? It's yeah. a quantifiable way to claim leadership. Mm -hmm. That said, they are also, I believe they've brought the network to standalone. So they are now a standalone network as well. So yeah. I think that standalone is actually a more important achievement to me for most operators than numbers because it, you can't really scale 5G properly with what it's potentially capable of, which I'll be discussing in one of my other topics. And and moving forward into the next releases to have the SA. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, SA is the true measurement. So good stuff, man. Let's move to my second topic. And Ericsson announced this week that they're going to bring disruption to maritime communications with uh, a 5G mesh network. And 
you know, I find this, you know, I, th I think this is really going to highlight the capabilities of 5G given its low latency and its, you know, ultra fast throughput and the ability to slice, you know, for, you know, for all sorts of things. But it seems to me, you know, maritime, that's got to be old school, right? Sort of like, you know, for years before FirstNet was rolled out by AT&T for first responders here in the U.S., um, it was a proprietary network that was developed by Motorola. And the challenge with that, that network for first responders in the United States was that it was great for communication, you know, within con the confines of a law enforcement cluster or a, you know, fire department cluster. But then there, there was really no connectivity with that communication system with hospitals and you know and other important entities that first responders need to you know to communicate with so um i don't have a lot of depth in maritime um i do have a boat in key west or in um, the middle keys but uh you know i, I think this is uh it, it's it's a great move by ericsson to uh, to bring 5g to an industry that um is probably very you know rooted in you know the way that they've communicated for for decades what do you think? I think it's interesting. Um, I, I don't know how much uptake it will have or what the impact will be in the maritime industry because I don't know, like you, I'm not as in depth um, on what necessarily are their, their pain points are. Yeah. But I think it's going to be interesting to see um, how it does accelerate the rate of just moving commerce because. I still believe that maritime is the number one method of shipping in the world. Sure. So, uh, you know, having that data, there's probably tons of IoT data that needs to be transferred over those networks. So, I think there's probably a benefit, a net benefit there, and it'll be interesting to see how that develops over time. Yeah, no, I, I can comment on ports. Um, I've spent time in um, in Riga at the five uh, G Detectory event, and was actually I actually hosted some panels and. One of the panels we had, you know, someone from um, the, the local port authority there and how they're deploying, beginning to deploy 5G and IoT to manage, I mean, um, all of the operations of a port, which are incredible, right? You know, you've got all of these large containers that are coming in, you have ships coming back and forth, and um, th there's a lot of connectivity that needs to happen there. And certainly ports have been a shining example of private networking deployment within 5G. So I think that's going to be very translatable to just in general, the, the, you know, the maritime, um, you know, vertical. So, uh, but we'll keep our eyes on that and report back as things develop. Let's move to your second topic this week. And you want to talk about 3GPP and when we should expect release 17. Yeah. So as you know, 3GPP is the standards body that sets, um, it's not really a standards body, but it's a specification body, standards body that help helps set the 3GPP spec, which is then adopted by different standards agencies like the ITU to mm -hmm. build next generation networks. And 3GPP is basically what all the operators and device makers go by to interoperability and to, to build the, the networks that we've been using since 3G. And we are currently on release 15 and 16 and release 17 was supposed to be done next year, but due to COVID-19, they had to move back the timeline. 
And now the timeline is 2022, I'm so 2021. And the reality is that this will be one of the bigger updates that will broaden the reach of what 5G can do. Mm -hmm. it's a, because it hasn't been finalized, we don't really know what it will do, but a lot of the items that are work items right now are focused on basically industrial applications and making 5G better because each of these releases kind of adds a new feature or fine tunes, moves, yeah. fine tunes a standard to make it better. And the compliance with the standard is kind of what allows a, a device or a network to properly utilize this capability. So, you know, something like a ability to do unlicensed is, is a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, because that's going to be probably utilized a lot in private networking. Yeah. And I think that it's fine that we're delayed a little bit, but it's still important because it's going to delay the role of 5G because there's a delay. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's okay because the operators are probably not quite really keeping up with that cadence. And for as long as it's not like a full year or a two year delay, I think we'll be fine. But it's something to pay attention to and make sure that COVID doesn't affect it too much because most of these 3GPP meetings happen in person. And while they can happen, you know, over Zoom and other applications, having them in person is still more valuable. And I think this is a good example of how the human element of standards creation affects how the, the technology moves forward. Yeah, I mean, I was about to ask you that question because, you know, you're, you're very technical and, um, you know, it, it, it makes me wonder, you know, like, what can they not accomplish over video collaboration, that sort of thing? I mean, what, what, you know, from your perspective, what, what is really that critical element, you know, and bringing actual people physically together to get this stuff done? I mean, is it, is it that complicated from, from your perspective? Well, it's very technical. Yeah. Um, the thing is, is that there, there's a lot of like discussion and back and forth because essentially these three GPP meetings are a group of the end people from the industry and you have representatives from like almost every company yeah. in the industry in this, in the three, three GPP meetings. And basically, basically people are, are arguing with one another, whether or not feature gets included. And part of that also has to inc incorporate the fact that there are people from different companies trying to get their technologies into the standard, either because they believe it's a superior standard or because they believe it's necessary for their company to be successful. So there's a lot of political, you know, jockeying that happens as well. And sure. release 17, one of the study items is called NR Extended Reality, which means that this might actually be the release that really incorporates some of the needs of XR to accelerate the growth of XR and 5G simultaneously. Because right now, mm -hmm. it's, in my opinion, a lot of people are just talking about 5G yeah. and utilizing it, but there isn't really a complete understanding of how XR and 5G work together very well. Yeah. 
And I think, you know, that that's an exciting combination. I mean, you and I have talked about the combination of um, AI and machine learning with 5G and what that can unlock. But, you know, when you start thinking about mixed reality and um, think about, you know, use cases where you could send a field service technician out with a lightweight, low power foldable design, as an example, and, and then use augmented reality, you know, to diagnose, troubleshoot, and repair very quickly complicated machinery, like, you know, in the oil and gas, you know, industry is one example. So, um, you know, I know you cover XR for the firm, but, you know, from my perspective, that potentially the combination of mixed reality and 5G is going to really unlock a host of just really mind-blowing use cases that, you know, people aren't even thinking about yet. And to your point, um, it's it's difficult, you know, and it takes time to get there and 3GPP can can help support and accelerate that with release 17. So uh, hopefully it'll come sooner versus later, but uh, we'll keep our eyes on that. Um, let's move to my third topic this week. And we've talked about 5G and military applications, but this week uh, the US military announced that they want to make 5G the centerpiece of its uh, future communications within military theaters with uh, something called JADC2. So the military loves to use different acronyms and that sort of thing. So um, this is no, no surprise to me. Um, not a ton of detail there because it's probably classified, but what do you think? Well, it's funny because JADC2 stands for Joint All Domain Con Command and Control. Of course, you know that. <laughs> it's it's a it's a essentially what they're trying to do is unify the communication standards across all DOD departments. Branches. Yeah. And my understanding is that they're they're going to be leveraging all types of communications, which mm -hmm. 5G does incorporate to basically create this network that allows for everybody to communicate with each other very easily and share and share amongst each other securely. Okay. My concern, especially when you look at like the most recent hack on the solar wind skies. Right. I, I can, I'm concerned about what if you have this one network and somebody can traverse all departments mm -hmm. DOD because they're all in one network and what if you can shut down that network you've basically shut down the defense department so right. I find that you know I really hope that they spend a lot of time on security and redundancy and preventing something like that from ever happening but it worries me to a degree especially considering how this recent hack penetrated multiple energy agencies mm -hmm. and I think it also penetrated the Department of Defense so I'm just, I'm concerned. And I think it's a good thing for, you know, mi mission readiness and, and military cohesiveness, but I also think it's a vulnerability. So I yeah. think you really need to think about security and security first. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, it's always gonna be top of mind and, you know, maybe one solution is, you know, you, you sort of break down these these networks into discrete private networks, right? Um, but certainly, yeah, that's going to be a challenge, you know. And unification brings with it, you know, simplicity and ease of management and that sort of thing. But to your point, 
it uh, it creates you know vulnerabilities at the same time. So we'll uh, there weren't a ton of details there, but as things you know develop and you know whatever they're willing to share, but I'm sure a lot of this is going to be classified how they build it out. I would also assume that the military is partnering with you know all of the usual suspects you know from an infrastructure perspective. Um, Cisco has great capabilities with respect to security, and uh, they've really been pushing fast and furiously into um, a lot of these 5G deployments as well globally. So um, we'll keep our eyes on it and we'll report back. So let's move to your third and final topic this week. And you and I were on Twitter, you know, we saw the news on the C-band auction and it raised an incredible amount of money. But with that, you know, I think it requires, you know, some balance, but why don't you provide, you know, kind of an overview on, on your take there? Absolutely. So the C-band auction, which you and I both have been talking about quite a bit, yeah. uh, is a big auction that means a lot to Verizon and AT&T specifically, because it gives them access to mid-band spectrum, which they don't have and they need to be able to build enough capacity in 5G to really deliver the speeds and coverage that are needed to deliver that 5G network experience. And right now, as of 12 hours ago, the auction has hit $50 billion. Unbelievable. Which is the largest ever by any auction in American history larger than the $45 billion that AWS3 raised mm -hmm. about eight years ago, seven years ago. Um, and as a result, Ajit Pai, the outgoing FCC chairman tweeted out that, you know, this is the, let's wait for the tweet. As of today, the FCC C-band auction is the highest grossing spectrum auction in American history at $50 billion and it's not over yet. So this is a process that happens in rounds and they're currently round 38. So it'll probably wrap up pretty soon, but they've crossed the $50 billion mark. So at this point, it's, it's already a monster. He's bragging about how much money it's raised Americans, especially with one, one of his, uh, one of his, um, one of the other commissioners. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, not something that I think is a good thing for the American public um, because this spectrum, while we should be earning money from it as, as citizens, because it is technically a shared thing that we are licensing to the operators, ultimately these costs get passed on right to consumers. So Absolutely. by increasing the cost of these, um, the spectrum, all you're doing is increasing the cost of rolling out 5G to the operators, which means they have to find new ways to charge customers more instead of giving more customers access. So it's gonna be much harder to give, you know, rural um, operators or rural users any kind of access if, if it costs, if the cost spectrum costs that much. And I, I, I'm not a fan of bragging about it. Um, I do like when the government is able to make money on things that it does, um, like TARP actually ended up making us money but I just think that making money from the government should be a, shouldn't really be a priority. It should be not losing money and, 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 you know, incentivizing growth and allowing users and, and app, application developers and everybody that utilizes the spectrum that they're leasing out to maximize economic growth and prosperity. And bragging about $50 billion doesn't roll with me. 
I, I absolutely agree. I mean, there's got to be a balance here, you know, between filling the government coffers and providing, you know, spectrum assets to deploy services. I mean, you know, the FCC has done some great things with its fast 5G plan, but, you know, all of that gets negated, you know, if they're raising 50 plus billion dollars on mid-band spectrum, to your point, that that becomes part of the uh, the overhead that has to be covered and amortized, um, and that that the way that it gets amortized is against subscriptions, right? And let's not forget that spectrum is it, it is definitely a key part of how cellular, you know, communications work. But you've you've also as an operator have to deploy extensive amounts of of physical and virtual infrastructure to make this all work. And the price tag on that is in the billions of dollars. So when you add the two together, um, you know, hey, you know, someone's got to pay for that. You know, operators are in the business for profitability. They're not, they're not subsidized. Although the federal government is providing some subsidies in areas like underserved rural America to get 5G out there. But I just think it sends a mixed message. And I agree with you. It's like, you know, bragging about raising 50, 50 billion with, with mid-band spectrum, I don't think is, uh, is, is the right thing to do. But anyway, time will tell. But uh, hey, Angela, another great podcast. Why don't you take it home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to reach out to us on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Whaletown Tech, and I'm at Anshel Sog. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week and have a great Christmas and happy holidays and even a great new year, hopefully.